Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education, I mean pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. Hello, everybody. Charles Eisenstein here once again with my dear friend, Helena Norberg-Hodge, uh, a kind of elder of the um, localization and, well, way beyond the localization movement, but just somebody on the left of the political spectrum who goes much deeper and far beyond most of the issues that frame left politics. Um, she's spent decades illuminating phenomena that almost nobody notices in the West. And anyway, she's been a big influence on me through her first film, Ancient Futures. And now she has a new book out, which is Local is Our Future. Is that what you said it was? That's right. <laughs> Local is Our Future. Yeah. Welcome to the conversation, Helena. Very happy to be here. Always enjoy talking to you. And yeah, it's fabulous also how your voice is getting out. Very, very exciting. You're yeah. really making waves around the world. Well, at least in our small echo chamber. <laughs> I sometimes question how far it's penetrating beyond our small circle. But yeah, I mean, one wish it would be even bigger, but I think it's clearly growing. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's that's a bit of a hopeful sign. Yeah, well, in a way, I'm standing on your shoulders, you know, so I have to thank you for that. Well, thank you. Thank you. My shoulders or the shoulders I stand on basically, are, you know, is that ancient community and earth-based culture of Ladakh and and many years also in Bhutan. So that's sort of been my, my teaching. If you could name one thing that you learned there that changed you the most, what, what do you think that would be? The realization after many years, it's really, even though I'd lived there, I spoke the language fluently, it took me many years to refer to deeply penetrate, but it was the absolute conviction and my own experience of feeling so much more joyful and so much more vital as a consequence of living a more connected life, of being more connected with others and with the plants, the animals. Mm -hmm. It took me years even to realize how meaningful it was for me to live in a household where animals were part sort of of the family and, um, and where you know, I was part of an intergenerational family you know, from the babies to the 80, even 90-year-olds. So that interconnected sort of walking distance life where you use, your, you use your body a lot too and where things operate at a much slower pace, at a pace that I believe is both human and ecological. Mm -hmm. It takes time to care. It takes time to, to nurture. And it, it takes time to be 
to be appreciated for who you are. The speed of our culture is so destructive. Yeah, so here's this thing you mentioned about, about the higher level of joy that you experienced in that society, which by conventional metrics would be a very backward, uh, undeveloped society. Yet you say people were happier, more connected, less lonely. I mean, today in the West, we face an epidemic of depression and suicide. Uh, is that just the human condition or is that something specific to our culture from, from your experience in Ladakh? Oh, absolutely to do with our culture. And I almost don't want to call it culture anymore. I see it as a, a tragic development path, which is essentially a mix of technology. It's money as a technology and then other technologies, very energy intensive, techno capital intensive path that's shaping culture. It's, and it's creating this global consumer culture, which as I say, we shouldn't really call culture because mm -hmm. cultures around the world emanated through a deep dialogue between people and their place, between the climate, the soil, the foods, the, and the various conditions shaped culture, even shaped racial differences. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're not going to go back to the same ways of living that, that shaped those cultures in the past, but I think we are actually beginning to move forward towards a recognition that we need to rebuild connections and and reclaim the economy as being shaped by culture rather than the economy shaping culture. Yeah. So, so one of the things that I've been speaking about a lot is how most of the polarized debates in our society mask the real issue and divert attention that would otherwise go toward real healing and change toward a relatively superficial um, debate that takes the most important things that need to be changed for granted as unchangeable or even unnoticed. So one example related to what you were saying is the debate about can we transition to zero carbon emission fuel sources in order to power a civilization as we know it? in order to achieve what they call sustainability, which is a, a concept that takes for granted that we want to sustain the kind of world we have now. Like, what are we wanting to sustain? So the assumption here that is rarely questioned is that we are becoming better and better off thanks to the technologies that have been powered by fossil fuels. In fact, you may have read the, uh, the article or book by Steven Pinker that makes a very, um, to many people, compelling argument that human beings are better off and happier than they've ever been before, thanks to, in his words, science, reason, and Western democratic values. So some people say, oh, it's impossible to continue our course of progress. We're going to have to make do with less. We're going to have to make some sacrifices. And others say, no, human ingenuity is unlimited. We will find, we will, you know, we're, we're improving lithium ion batteries and, and all these new technologies. And so we're going to be able to continue the course of development and call it sustainable development. And so both sides are taking for granted something that your lived experience showed you is, is not true, which is that we are better off than ever. 
Well, exactly. And one of the things I've been saying for a while is I think once we really deeply wake up to the incredible impoverishment that this path has led to, that deep impoverishment of being cut off from meaningful relationships that are the cornerstone, especially for children as we grow up, they're the cornerstone of a really healthy, deep self-respect that comes from a sense of being expanded, connected and expanded to others and to, to nature. It's a spiritual inner reality that many people are beginning to talk about and experiencing, you know, partly through spiritual practices, partly through building community. But I think the piece that's still missing often is what does that look like in terms of the economic system? And that for me then is, you know, local is the, the best term that I can come up with. But I just, I think, you know, a 23-year-old young woman who works with me in England said to me, you know, Helena, once people really understand about the suicide rate among young people, they will wake up. They're going to listen to everything we're trying to say. And I said to her, you know, I'm worried that so much of what's happening is that people end up blaming themselves. You know, the young people are committing suicide, are feeling such low self-esteem, they're feeling so cut off, they're feeling, you know, they're not beautiful enough, they're not famous enough, they're having, struggling to make a decent living without killing themselves. And you know, and they blame themselves. And then the parents, obviously, you know, if their child commits suicide, it's an absolute disaster because there will be even more self-blame there. So I think, yeah, we just have not understood. You know, we keep saying still, even my left-leaning, ecologically-minded friends will say, oh, you know, those people in, in Myanmar or in, you know, Ladakh, they have nothing but they seem so happy. And when they say they have nothing, you know, they are ignoring the fundamental importance of real community and connection, the fundamental importance of not having debt, the fundamental importance of having plenty of time. Mm -hmm. Time has been made, you know, this scarce commodity. This economic system has succeeded in, you know, in closing time in such a way that it's become you know, one of the most rare and precious commodities. And the other thing it's doing is throwing away the most abundant renewable resource we have, which is human beings. Human beings are being dumped out of the equation of, you know, Steven Pinker's path of progress, Elon Musk's path for progress, where, you know, robots are going to do more and more for us. We're going to be happily, you know, putting vast amounts of, of resources and energy into going to the moon and to Mars. It's a really crazy and insane path that I think not enough people are questioning holistically. Mm -hmm. There is also a wake-up going on that I think is hopeful. Yeah, one, I think one sign of that wake-up is that no one is actually very excited about going back to the moon or a manned mission to Mars. Nothing like when I was a kid and the first moon landings were happening. I mean, people were obsessed with it. It was this glorious achievement that everybody coalesced around in celebration. And today, no one really cares. 
no, no young person, no ki kids are not obsessed with rockets and space anymore. So I feel like there's kind of like you're saying, people are waking up to the poverty of the vision of the future that we've been offered. And, yeah. and many of them are looking around for alternatives. And, and I think that's one reason, aside from cultural appropriation, yada, 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 that's one reason why people are so attracted to authentic cultures um, and, and place-based place societies. Yeah. Part of that is you see so many people who've been sitting in their high-rise towers in their big cities in front of a computer screen, and in that dead, inan inanimate world, they develop a real longing for connection to life, to nature. And so I love, you know, the new farmers movement of people actually of all ages who decide that they want to farm, you know, they're abandoning that urban, high-tech, high-rise life for the land. It's a real micro-trend in that direction. And for me, what's so miraculous about it, what's so truly inspiring is when you realize how little support that movement has. When you realize that, unfortunately, still, our governments are still subsidizing mm -hmm. mass urbanization, mega technology, and tragically, in the so-called third world, it's a, it's a very frightening um, path because the, you know billions of dollars are going into pulling and pushing people off the land into these mega cities mm -hmm. where now, you know, you can't breathe. And they even in Delhi, right. they have to issue warnings about children not allowed outdoors. So I, I see this, e even actually from Beijing and Mumbai, there are young people coming out of the cities. I often call them corporate refugees, mm -hmm. you know, abandoning those high-tech, well-paid jobs to do something more meaningful and connected. And I just wish we could get that message out more widely and you know, have more people really value, rationally value what their hearts so clearly do value. You know, just like you say in your book, you know, our hearts sort of know better, but we're being led by very well-funded, big ideas that, as we started talking about too, Charles, is that these well-funded ideas are often serving to polarize us into these extreme positions. You know, absolutely no animals, you know, veganism or, uh, you know, eating meat three times a day from, you know, the most cruel and ghastly right. animal factories. You know, there's, there's another part there, but we don't get to hear about that. Right. Yeah. I have this phrase called the wrong debate that I like to use. Um, which applies to so many areas. And one of them, I think, is the debate about, you know, veganism versus omnivore, when really the question is industrial agriculture versus ecological agriculture. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and industrial agriculture, you have to remember, is agriculture that favors the big over the small. And we're talking now about enormous monolithic, monopolistic multinational corporations that not only, you know, impose these ever larger monocultures, but that are transporting food back and forth over distances that are, it's unbelievable, you know, routinely mm -hmm. things are flown to the other side of the world to be cleaned or washed and then flown back again. 
right. and countries import and export the same product. Now, that global food economy is for sure the biggest contributor to uh, climate change. And drawing down that by basically not swapping the same products, you know, like Australia sends 20 tons of bottled water to the UK and the UK exports 20 tons of bottled water to Australia. But, you know, this is just a tiny, tiny example of a systemic shift that's happened over the last 30 years. And if people could only, you know, wake up to this and see that few minor changes in policy could do away in a truly systemic way with the terrible pollution, the, the mountains of plastic, the refrigeration, you know, in addition to fossil fuel use. Um, and instead, you know, the debate keeps just focusing on the individual and whether you should be driving your car and whether you should be using this or that, when the systemic change that would be relatively easy doesn't even enter the debate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you a little bit more about this um, question of individual changes, you know, be the change versus uh, trying to change the system. There's, there's some, some nuances there that I want to explore, but first I wanted to offer one more example of a distracting polarized debate and see if you had a comment on it. Because uh, I know a lot of the listeners are in the UK, and it, the, Brexit is a perfect example of this, where it's so highly polarized into uh, Brexit and Remain that very few people are talking about the fact that whether or not Brexit happens, the UK still has treaties with the European Union and, and the, the countries of Europe to abide by certain regulatory regimes, to, to, to like there's all kinds of things that will not change, whether or not um, trade treaties, things like that, that, that will be untouched if Brexit happens. And it, those are pretty much off the radar screen of, of public consciousness. Do, do you have any, and I know Brexit is super complicated at this point. I haven't followed it in that amount of detail, but I wonder if you might, might comment on that. Well, absolutely. It's, you know, the main leaders of the Brexit movement are dreaming about closer alliance with America and through trade treaties there. And actually, in both cases, in the EU as well, the whole shift is towards more and more global trade as the only way to, to grow the economy. This is the belief of our leaders. And the increase in global trade, as I was just saying, of course, is a massive increase in CO2 emissions, in energy use, and very importantly, in unemployment. So for me, the big concern is that whether Brexit or, um, or not, this path of increasing essentially global economic activity through more and more energy use, more and more technology, bigger and bigger monocultures, and fewer and fewer people in the equation. Both paths are disastrous, and it really is, in the short term, I guess I would say, I would, it, it would be better to remain, because within the EU, there is a bit more environmental protection, but it's being very rapidly eroded. And that real issue, you know, the 
big picture behind all this is not being discussed. And the whole country is being torn apart. And it's become, you know, the government has been at a standstill, it's a complete stalemate, which is another thing I hope people will wake up to, that if you look around the world over the last two decades or so, you'll see case after case where the government is simply not functioning. You know, mm -hmm. It shuts down, you know, as it did you know, Trump recently. It's in complete stalemate as it has been in Holland. And yeah. We have to really ask what's happened to the political process. And again, you know, from our point of view, we understand it much better through understanding the bigger global picture and particularly what's happening at the level of the global economy. Of course, if the government is stalemated, then unelected bureaucrats and the people working behind the scenes have more power to get their way because everybody else is just spending all their energy locking horns with each other. Exactly. It's definitely um, a very frightening um, situation that the, the issues that are being discussed with, you know, more and more passion and vehemence are, yeah, keeping the bigger train running in the same direction. And I think the, the thing we really have to get out is that as people feel more and more marginalized, as they have to run faster and faster just to stay in place, to just have a roof over their head, have education, some kind of health care, as people become marginalized, they are tending to vote to the leaders that say, forget about all this green stuff, forget about the rainforest, as Bolsonaro mm -hmm. is saying in Brazil, we're going to grow the economy for you, we're going to make your country great again. And so we are facing, you know, the prospect of fascism, which will make it illegal to deal with climate change or any of the other serious, you know, ecocidal mm -hmm. changes we're witnessing. Um, so for me, it's so important that we come out with a, a broad me message to people that we make it very clear that there is a path forward that would genuinely create more stable livelihoods and a healthier planet. And it's not the sort of high-tech, ever more renewable energy path, which you know claims to be able to have enough renewable energy to fuel the global economy. We've got to really start looking at the enormous benefits of strengthening local economies worldwide. Mm -hmm. Okay, I wanna, I wanna bring a few things together here. Um, so you mentioned fascism, which draws not only on economic desperation and dissatisfaction with the, the elites, but also on a crisis of identity, because fascists offer people who no longer identify with their nation or their government or, or the story that they've been offered. It offers them a new identity um, and a new way to derive meaning and make sense of life. So people who are dislocated tend to be very vulnerable to fascism. Another thing that happens with the dislocation, you earlier referred to the lack of self-esteem that people in a modern, fragmented, atomized uh, society experience. And we could go into, you know, in healthy cultures, where does self-esteem come from? And I'm sure that we would talk about how it comes from a full complement of of durable relationships, uh, intergenerational, 
um, extended family, um, the people that you interact with every day, the, the, the place, the stories of the land, the animals and plants that you interact with, like these are ways that we constellate an identity as human beings. And then enmeshed in that matrix of relationships that are stable and durable over time, we feel secure. And we, so, so stripped of all that, I think one reason for the polarization, why the polarizing narratives land on such fertile ground and why they're so, so quickly taken up is that they are a, a kind of a substitute form. They're a substitute form of self-esteem because you get to identify with being on team good against team evil you feel a sense of inclusion. People who go to Trump rallies, they speak of the incredible love and solidarity that they, that they experience at the Trump rally. And they, for that brief moment, they know who they are. And they, they, they feel that all is well with me and in the world through my participation in this thing larger than myself. So, okay, so we have the, the, the kind of false self-esteem or the compensatory self-esteem that comes from identity with a polarized position and uh, which allows you to be in that in-group and, and of course classically too charles classically mm. the that that false sense is very much linked to making the outsider the immigrant um you know the poor the enemy Right. And, uh, and that's, again, something you can see worldwide, you know, even right. in India. So I just want to take it one more step here yeah. to relate to the other thing you said about this, all the stuff about personal choice, lifestyle choice, and that kind of thing. Because another way to feel okay about yourself in the absence of sustaining relationships is to make personal lifestyle choices that identify you as being part of the in-group, part of the which you identify with being good. And, and so they become a, almost a badge of belonging to uh, a certain group. Not that there's, you know, not idealistic, beautiful impulses embedded in people's life, lifestyle choices. Like, it's not that, that, you know, I ride a bicycle instead of driving. Well, for a period I did anyway. I tried to, <laughs> but the reason I did that wasn't only so that I could signal my virtue. It was also because I really didn't feel good about all that exhaust coming out of my tailpipe. You know, um, yeah. people who don't eat animals, it's not only that they want to, I mean, or maybe not even at all, or maybe just a little bit of signaling virtue. It's that they really care about the suffering of these beings and people who try to cut fossil fuel use in their lives and offset their carbon emissions and so on. It's also because of a desire to do whatever I can. I don't even know what to do, but to do something, to do something. So I don't want to just discard the lifestyle changes that people make um, that come from a very sincere place. Yet, as you were saying, if it's only that, then there's something missing here. But I'm curious to, if you could say more about like what is the role for people on an individual level, you know, taking shorter showers and riding their bikes and eating less meat and, um, you know, buying an electric car or whatever people do, installing solar panels on their roofs. 
What, what do you really think about all that? Well, I guess we try in our organization to encourage a, a sort of two-track approach. We want, first of all, so much for people to wake up to the bigger picture so that whatever change they're involved in really is as strategic, as significant as it can be. And we do see a huge benefit from this awareness of, of localization, meaning connecting locally to other like-minded people, and then to change the I to a we. So it's not so much anymore just about, you know, whether I am riding my bike every time I go shopping or whatever, but it's looking at what can we do in our community to perhaps improve the bike paths, to do, you know, <laughs> what we're passionate about, you know, to start local food initiatives, which requires activism. It requires people to get together, you know, both consumers, with farmers, retailers. This local food movement that is growing around the world is vastly more significant, I think, than people realize. It's both a lifeboat in case our leaders continue to uh, on a path that is geometrically getting worse. Uh, at least we're creating lifeboats at the local level. They may not, you know, protect us if, you know, we, we don't know what kind of disasters we may be facing, but it is immediately, it's a way of making life more enjoyable, healthier, more meaningful in a way that is archetypal. I mean, people comment on it at the farmer's markets, how there's, there's a feeling here that goes beyond words. Mm -hmm. I believe it's because, you know, through our entire evolution, we were involved with gathering, growing, processing, cooking, food. It was absolutely central. And that's how it should be in any healthy economy. It's the only thing we produce as human beings that every human being needs every day of their life. And we're locked in this crazy system that's separating us further and further from that food. So making a shift there is far more important and it, it's deeply satisfying. And it is not, yet, not just about, I'll go and shop at the farmer's market, it's about seeing how can I get together with others to strengthen and further a local food movement and it takes you know the form of edible schoolyards and all kinds of, of different approaches many of which are becoming so sexy and so exciting you know particularly where you have for instance a community supported agriculture scheme and the people who can afford it put in extra money to pay for people who can't afford um, to buy there so that they make it as reasonable as in the supermarket. Mm -hmm. This is only us subsidizing now while our taxes are subsidizing old dead food from far away, which I don't think anybody would vote for if we had an opportunity to talk about the dominant system in a meaningful way. But while that's going on, there are so many things we can do that change the I to a we. And again, once we truly understand how cut off and how lonely we are at a deep level um, and we make a more conscious attempt to reconnect with others where we live we see you know i remember charles you were interviewing a woman who was helping people get off antidepressants 
Yeah. You know, she had found that what really works is for people to get together in each other's kitchens, you know, talk to each other. And this we see as a general formula for healing, even for people who are not aware of how spiritually impoverished they are. We, we see it again and again that that face-to-face connection, the real support that can come from it is, is life-changing. And so we're very privileged in that we feel we have sort of a perspective that can start both the personal and planetary healing in one swoop. Um, but then we want also for people to be willing to discuss and have their voices heard about the dominant system and how if we are informed about the many examples of this sort of re-indigenization or localization or community building, you know, the new economy movement in various forms, if people are more informed about that and help to spread the word, I still believe that we could get a real upswelling of something like a marriage between Extinction Rebellion and Occupy and the spiritual New Age movement and the people who are concerned with so-called, you know, third world poverty. There's a, there is a, a picture out there where literally all of us have a lot to win by, by um, speaking out for and, and eventually demonstrating for a, a genuine shift. Yeah, I, I see that too. Uh, I see the possibility, and sometimes I alternate though between that, and it just looks like things are getting worse and worse. But I've recently been seeing some really encouraging developments. Um, for one thing, there is now some movement inside North American governments to devote some subsidies toward rebuilding soil, and. Yes. And that entails a shift away from industrial agriculture because you can't do that with a standardized cookie cutter approach that you can scale up. It, it necessarily requires a farmer who really knows the land and, and is um, able to apply things in a specific local way. Uh, I also, in Africa, you know, when most, when conventionally people, when they talk about uh, ending third world poverty, they mean uh, raising GDP and increasing the incomes of people there and urbanization, lifting them out of rural poverty. That's the conventional plan. But I see that changing as well. And maybe you know some of, some of these examples too. I, I recently ran into a woman from Zimbabwe, um, Precious uh, Piti, her name is, that's her actual name, um, oh. Precious and well-named. Uh, and and she works with the Alan Savory Institute, uh, but uh, going beyond landowners and working um, with communally owned land, uh, so that the land healing that's possible with Alan Savory's regenerative techniques becomes can be applied to communally held land as well, uh, and it's. You know, that kind of thing. And then across Africa, um, Senegal, the eco-village movement's really, really strong there. Exactly. Uh, there's, yeah, there's, there's some really positive things that are happening kind of underneath the surface. Absolutely. I mean, that's really for us, again, what we're documenting in our Planet Local series. Because you see, all of it does require local knowledge, 
and more human scale adapted systems. And I, I do want to warn about with regenerative agriculture that if we don't keep that bigger picture and clarity about scale and local adaptation, we can turn almost anything into vast systems that are about extractive capitalism and will continue you know, taking us in the wrong direction. But I do see, yes, so many, and I, I'm just like you, I'm very excited by these bottom-up initiatives that are particularly, you know, they're earth-based. They start with healing the, the soil. They're about finding the adapted seeds, the adapted animal varieties. And by the way, in England, there's a very exciting project of rewilding called mm. NEP, K-N-E-P-P, where they took an old dairy estate, it was about 3,000 acres, and just basically let it go wild and reintroduced older varieties of cattle as well as horses. And, and it's, now they also make a lot of money because it's, it's like going on safari. It's almost like going to parts <laughs> of Africa. It's so exciting to see all the wildlife that has returned. And uh, my... My passion in all of that would be to encourage also agri-wilding so that there isn't, we, we do pay attention to reducing the human ecological footprint in terms of the food economy, but at, on a path that is about rewilding and that too is happening. It's, it's often happening when permaculture meets biodynamic farming and uh, you know, the emphasis on diversity is very strong you see the wildlife returning. You see how you can increase productivity for human consumption while increasing the space for wildlife and reducing our ecological footprint. So there is, yeah. there is a real win-win-win systemic path out there that I just hope more people will acquaint themselves with. Yeah, and, and besides the distinction between agricultural land and wild land is questionable because because right. people always interact somehow with their land and even exactly. hunter gatherers they they um, influence the land in ways that helps them thrive over time so the, the difference between that and full-on agriculture is a difference of degree and the question then becomes not about setting aside some land to stay wild, but it becomes in every place, what kind of participation is going to serve all the beings there, including the human beings. Exactly. Yeah, I'm so, it's so delightful to talk to you, Charles, because, you know, uh, it's just, uh, you know, there are just very few people who have that bigger picture. And it's so tragic because we were talking about this polarization and so, you know, many deep ecologists just see, use the label agriculture and, and think of it as the enemy and then, you know, think no further about where our food is coming from. Uh, the more integrated view is, is so healing, you know, because, it can, you know, we can see that these divides, as we were saying earlier, are not, first of all, are not the real issue anyway. And once we start being willing to open our minds to look more clearly and at the bigger picture. And when I say bigger picture, it's enormously helpful to have more information about what's actually going on in the global south or in the 
so-called third world, because you know we're we're fed with this idea, yeah, they have nothing and they're impoverished, and we must bring them the blessing of our modern educational system, our modern mm-hmm. tools and technologies, and you know we don't realize that when we're told about the growth there, we're talking about having pulled people into debt, people who were never in debt, even with microcredit, it was often a way of spreading this dependence and debt creation into rural areas and inevitably pulling people into urban um, centers that we all know, we can see they're simply not functioning. It's not possible to sustain life in that way. So it's healing to wake up to this, to understand that there are large parts of the world where people are still living closer to the land, still have more intergenerational community, and we can learn so much from them. And by the way, this is another reason why I, I also encourage conscious, caring people to travel, not just to see more of the world, but just to learn and to communicate because we have such an enormous information gap between mm-hmm. the so-called developed and the, and the developing world. Right. And that would, that would, yeah, you know, our, our way of life appears on the screen as, you know, simply pushing a few buttons, never having to work, this very sexy, abundant life. So young people in particular think their parents are crazy to tell them to stay on the farm or to be doing something more hands-on, um, mm-hmm. closer to the land. That's made to look primitive and backward. And even in the school books, it will say, we have to do everything we can to get these illiterate farmers off the land. So that's what children are taught. Again, huge need for communication. Yeah. It it can become a kind of um, reverse colonialism or anti-colonialism in that instead of going to other places in the world to to bring the benefits of our society to them and to teach them the way to live more people now like what you're what you're pointing to is people going to other places not to teach but to learn to 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 say wow we we are so distanced now from our indigenous ways we don't even know how to live in community. We don't even know how to live in place. But maybe if I visit you and I stay with you long enough, not just you know to photograph you as some kind of spectacle, but to actually embed myself for a while and, and get some understanding, maybe I can learn something and bring back to my impoverished culture. Because once you go to a place like that, it's impossible, I think, unless you're really diluted, it's, it's pretty hard to think that we are the superior culture anymore. When you come from, a, from North America, where, where the, you know, the levels of depression and anxiety and debt and opioid addiction and suicide, um, obesity, uh, just poor health, like the desperation here, it's much harder to maintain the illusion. Yeah. Yeah. But you, also, we ended up in our organization organizing reality tours to the West for community leaders 
so that they could actually come to the West and see with their own eyes that these images in the media and what they were taught in schooling and so on was actually not true. Mm -hmm. So to actually encounter people who are trying so hard to start a more ecological project, to live in more um, in co-housing or start an eco-village is extremely helpful to create community leadership over there. So in, in both cases, it's about understanding the reality on both sides of the world. It's mm -hmm. about experiential knowledge instead of abstract concepts words that have been fed to us without us having any experience of the reality behind them. Um, so I think that right now is a very important point because I've, I've seen over the last few decades how precisely the more conscious, caring people are saying, no, 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 I shouldn't travel. And I'm saying, please, please help us to bridge this divide to inform ourselves better both ways. Yes, let's not engage in mass tourism, you know, just to travel and take a nice photo, as you were saying. But let's try to encourage much deeper dialogue between so-called North and South. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't know if you have these, if your organization has gathered some of these resources, but I bet a lot of young people would be interested to know, okay, you know, where? Should I go exactly? Where could I be received? I, I think that the that when people do this kind of travel, they should be prepared to work and to learn. Exactly. So if, yes, no, we do. You know, on our yeah. website, the Planet Local series, mm -hmm. and of course, our friend and colleague Manish is gathering a whole network of what he calls ecoversities. Yes. And we are thinking of trying to develop a sort of a a program also for young people where we could support them in visiting these places. Um, it's, you know, we also do take volunteers in Ladakh still. And that's, for most people, that's a life-changing experience. So can you imagine if instead of going to a four-year university and coming out with, you know, 50 or $100,000 worth of debt and still not much prospect for a job. If instead people took four years to maybe go to four places and spend a year in each place working and learning, I mean, imagine like what they would, <laughs> how they would be transformed and what skills they would have. Absolutely. And, you know, this is also what, you know, there has been a bit of a move uh, in the transition movement about talking about skilling up for power mm -hmm. down. You know, they were anticipating this major crunch with peak oil, which I have to say, I was always saying, well, I'm not so sure because with financial deregulation, we're allowing these make-believe trillions of dollars to support the madness and to keep excavating for oil and <laughs> craziness of gas fracking. It's, it's mad. And we also need to remind ourselves that the measurement of success, GDP, is utterly mad. It's simply a measure of commercialization. So I, I hope that people will, instead of feeling that this is depressing, that we've got this craziness in the dominant system, that they will see it as an opportunity to just inform themselves of the basic and basics and become big picture activists. We need to laugh this 
econometric thinking off the stage, you know, off our planet. It's truly crazy. And I think the only reason we're in this situation is that it started the foundations of this economic system was slavery. So slavery, colonialism, which then translated into debt enslavement, is what's allowed this dominant economy to continue to grow. And it's become so big that most people have not looked at it. And, and I think even at the top, the, you know, the CEOs who are pushing for more global trade and so on, they're caught in this machine of having to try desperately to stay on top because when there's the next merger, is your company going to be on top or the other one? Are you going to lose your job or is the other guy? So we created a rat race where everybody's chasing their own tail and, and very few are stepping back to look at that bigger picture. And you know what we were just saying about going around the world to look at some of these place-based ways of doing things, from my point of view, it should also be accompanied by the sort of rudiments of looking at the bigger economic system. And I'm, you know, there's a sad uh, situation often where many of the activist community and many women, especially, who are so carry such deep wisdom, shy away from looking at the economy and, and think of it as too intimidating. And, and yet, uh, honestly, the basics of it are such that a 10-year-old child would just laugh at it if they, you know, if they had the opportunity to look at the, the basic mm-hmm. foundations of the thinking and the, and the absolute myths that go on in terms of claiming that a rise in GDP is actually benefiting the majority. Well, I think it's getting easier to see that it's not benefiting the majority, but there is a systemic necessity for rising GDP, which is that our monetary system doesn't work if there isn't growth, meaning growth in GDP. So if you're going to transition, I mean, I wrote a book about this, you know, if, if, if we're going to transition to a, a system that is degrowth or steady state or a degrowth economy, we need different agreements that constitute money. So, you know, you can't actually just um, say, okay, we're going to, you know, give up on economic growth and we're going to, unless you also change the money system. And that, um, I feel like we have. But, you know, don't you think every person on this planet, if they truly understood what this money system is made of, would agree that we need to, well, I say every person on the planet, you know, people at the top are generally so trained into this as the only way. And this is where, you know, you need a sort of combination of experiential knowledge on the ground and a clarity about what this, what the foundations are. So the make-believe money linked to subsidies for monopolies, you know, which don't pay tax and then squeezing everybody else for taxes regulating everybody while global monopolies are deregulated. I think, mm-hmm. I think shifting the basics of that, obviously, as a systemic shift, is completely doable. The only thing, you know, what stands between real change and that is the understanding of the, the voter 
you know, the voter that thinks right now that left and right is so significant, like we were saying mm -hmm. also with Brexit or no Brexit, uh, are simply not looking at those foundations. And that's what we just have to do. Well, you know, people are now confronted with uh, quite a number of conflicting accounts of how the world is the way it is and why it is. And they're, they're faced with these different stories. And, and I feel like a lot of people shut down when you yeah. try to, to go into anything fundamental. But there's one thing that is reaching more and more people and that will inevitably reach even more in the future, which is the simple issue of debt, indebtedness. Yeah. So I think that the, for me, I don't know if it's the greatest hope. I, I, I also concur with you about the, uh, the local food movement. And, and I mean, after all, this whole thing started with agriculture. So, but, yeah. but the, the one exercise of people power that could really change things is a debt revolt. Yeah. That's because that's, that's something everybody can understand. And yeah. everybody yeah. knows that even if they can't articulate it, they know that there's something not fair about this. Yeah. To have yeah. to be in debt just to live. Yeah. And it occurred to me. You know, in America, you know, and people are they're basically concerned with building up their, their sort of CV in terms of their debt history. If they haven't borrowed in the past, they're disadvantaged. It's like, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's just beyond belief right. how, how caught up we've become in this uh, system. But, you know, I think. The, again, for me, when I keep saying the big picture, I'm encouraging people to think of more than one element. And, you know, I call it sort of radical holism, where we start looking for where things are connected. And, and then, of course, as part of that, the realization that we need to feel connected and that reconnection at the local level to nature and other people is so healing and I, I feel you know the local food movement is central to that but there are also um, many and every day I learn of more you know programs that will take delinquent youth out into mm -hmm. the wilderness and just teach them a few skills and then teach them to talk to it, to others from the heart to have people who listen to them who care about them it's transforming prisoners and angry mm -hmm. delinquents, sometimes just in a matter of days. Yeah. Just recently, you know, this prisoner said to me, he's part of a local food uh, project in Devon. Mm -hmm. And he said he had never, ever in his whole life had a conversation with people before where people really seemed to care about who he was and what he had to say. Um, so I feel... You know, when we combine, you know, some understanding of debt and the economy with an understanding of our deeper psychological and spiritual needs, we have the potential for very, very powerful change. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. I, I feel that the work that people are doing with, with prisoners and with, with youth, and I mean, actually, I don't want to exclude any of the work that people are doing in service yeah. to healing. Because ultimately, our, our social trauma is at the root of a lot of our divisions. And if that doesn't heal, 
how are we ever going to cohere as a society to radically change course? Yeah. So even if someone... Yeah. yeah. But you know, when you said anything, again, there's like this really... For me, you know, there are these two distinct paths into the future. The one which is now, you know, encouraged from the top down, which started with the slavery and expansionist, also patriarchy and white supremacy. You know, that system, which is a few hundred years old, being continued through our leadership. And then I see this other path from the bottom up, which is a certain a cultural evolution where people are waking up again to what they knew when they lived in a more indigenous way, waking up to the fact that we are part of the earth, that we belong to each other, that you know every child needs to be seen and recognized and heard by a group of people, not just a tired, exhausted mother in a nuclear household. So, you know, that wake up is giving birth to another way of feeling, another way of doing things. But of course, from the top down, you know, the, the, we know what we do to prisoners in the dominant system. And with people who are depressed or angry, we're talking about drugs that we now see how disastrous they are. And we really do need to have clarity about how almost anything that comes out of that highly funded corporate system, we have to view with suspicion and, you know, be clear about what, you know, what I'm calling more localized, more community-based bottom-up initiatives so that we support genuine healing and, and genuine, truly sustainable and lasting healing. Right. Yeah, totally. Because otherwise, uh, our healing energies can be diverted onto things that actually serve the status quo. Exactly. So we need a, yeah, we really do need a, a, a clear, I mean, sometimes it's unpopular to call upon the mind as opposed to the heart. But I think that we really need both, you know, we need a clear understanding of the way that the world works. And that information then comes through the mind and feeds the heart so that the heart can better choose. The heart still does the choosing, but the mind brings information that is important. Otherwise, you know, you might devote yourself to, to, I mean, to use one of your examples, you know, to, to poverty eradication programs that are actually making people more impoverished in, exactly. in, in destroying their community. I mean, there's, there's, I heard that the that the Bill Gates Foundation is assiduously working to destroy communal land rights in Egypt uh, with the rationale that it will establish property, you know, and titles and deeds so that people will have access to capital. They'll be able to borrow against their property. So really what that means is that they'll be able to go into debt and lose their land. But the people, there, there are people who are, are, pushing this, who probably feel good about themselves every day that they're helping the poor. And, yeah, and they, what's missing you know, is not their heart. Yeah. It's not that their heart is deficient. It's that they're in, in a story that is diverting their heart, heart's exactly. attention to the wrong thing. Exactly. And, you know, I think this is a really important point because it's very fashionable these days, as you said, to, you know, talk about just listening to the heart. It's popular to talk about the sort of theory of information deficit, that that's all wrong, that people don't learn from information, 
It's a very popular meme right now. People don't learn from information, or I maintain that they would and could from authentic, holistic reality information instead of soundbite and often very well-funded ideas that actually divide us. And I don't see it as some evil conscious conspiracy, but I see it as, you know, Bill Gates is a good example. I mean, there are people, you know, who are absolutely convinced that the American way is the only way and that is, you know, private property, it's the individual entrepreneurship. Yeah, and they believe that they're doing the right thing. Um, and they are not informed by the reality on the ground in a holistic way what these nice ideas actually lead to. Um, you know, we're, we're, yeah, we are, I would argue, actually hugely deficient in the sort of information that can bring us back to healing and that can bring us together uh, instead of these ideas that we were talking about earlier that divide us and that creates more and more um, passionate and, and often now violent um, division in society. Mm -hmm. Any of the politics of identity are not really helping us to look at the more systemic part, you know, even, you know, it's very popular now to think that almost anyone who has wealth or power is a psychopath, um, there's, yeah, just the sort of politics of identity. I mean, the whole Me Too movement, we have to be really careful that we're not um, joining something that can only help to divide us further. Um, we're, what I'm seeing is that from the ground up, there is a movement where we acknowledge the need for respecting the feminine and of course that means respect for women, but it's women and the feminine. And we see that in this new cultural evolution where we're coming back home, there is a very clear trend where men are beginning to own and respect their own feminine, just by virtue of the fact that they're carrying babies you know, on their stomachs or backs in a way that 30, 40 years ago would have been considered very unmanly and in, in some circles still could be considered, you know, a bit wet or whatever. But this regaining and reclaiming the feminine in men as well as, as women, that's a very different path. That's an inclusive path forward. Um, whereas, you know, the sort of feminism that's all about, we've got to get into those CEO positions and be treated as though we're exactly like men, we're, we're losing the plot. Yeah, I don't think that the goal of feminism is to uh, gain equal status in the world-destroying machine. It's got to be to transform that, that machine in alignment with feminine values and away from a distorted masculinity that isn't actually, I, I would argue, it's not even what masculinity is supposed to be. It's been diverted onto something that has become uh, unmoored from from life. Uh, yeah, and you know, that's again, one of the big lessons from Ladakh was seeing how already as a five-year-old boy, by carrying your little sister on your back, 
you were starting to nurture and care for as as young as five and then you know the mm. eight-year-old uncles the same thing so the men retained their feminine side their nurturing side and of course that meant that every mother had about 10 caretakers for every child and she was freed up to be much more involved in the political and economic decision making in agriculture mm -hmm. which was their main uh, economic activity so it was very very clearly a much better balance between male and female masculine and feminine and then i saw literally in the 70s barbie doll and rambo being brought in with huge force and money and pushed on people and 10 and 12 year olds were starting to imitate those role models mm -hmm. and we happened to be living half the year in rural spain and half the year in Ladakh in the 80s and even in the villages of spain those same toy shops and those same Barbie dolls and Rambos were also coming in and having a, a profound effect even in Spain in the 80s. So mm -hmm. there's a, a way that this commercial consumer monoculture, as I was saying earlier, you know, is shaping, misshaping culture in so many different ways. Helen, I'm, I'm actually, I, I wanted to end pretty soon because it's getting late here, but I'm really interested in um, the division of, of roles and labor in Ladakh, in traditional Ladakh, uh, according to, to sex or to, to gender. Uh, because I remember, you know, in your, in your book, Ancient Futures, you wrote about how women had a lot of power, even though it wasn't a society where there was no differentiation between the, the roles of the, of the, of men and women. Um, so it's not that they were um, the same. There's a, there's a slogan I, I came across recently, uh, uh, equal does not equal same. And I wonder if you could just say anything like what, um, were there things that men did that women rarely did? Were there things that women did that men rarely did? Did that mean that they were unequal? Um, where was the actual power? Um, in, in, in our society, we even, even our association of what power is buys into patriarchal values, where, where the things that are, that are visible, we say, okay, well, that must mean that they have a lot more power. But yeah. if the locus of society is not a centralized top-down, if it's not a centralized top-down society, but if it's, if it's more based in the home, in the, in the village, then what looks like the men are more powerful there too, might actually not, that might actually be more indicative of our own perceptions than of the reality on the ground there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that, this is what I saw is that I would say that women in Ladakh had more real power than women in Sweden where I grew up. And I would say Sweden probably, you know, women have higher status there than in any other industrialized country. But in real ways, you know, women who were having children, having those roughly 10 live-in caretakers for every child was completely, you know, liberating. And of course, for the child made such a difference. And, and by the way, that also I wanted to say earlier, you know, that a friend of mine in Sweden did a study, it's quite a long time ago now, but 
the study was on looking at whether higher education improved self-esteem. And she knew that it probably wouldn't be that. But she was surprised by the answer when she did this study in Sweden. What emerged was that the people who had lower self-esteem had the smallest number of significant others in their lives. And many of them would say they were sort of nobody. And the mm -hmm. people who had the highest self-esteem had the largest number of significant others. So, you know, significant others meaning meaningful, long-term, caring relationships. And of course, children in a traditional setting, in most traditional cultures, grew up with that larger number of people. And for the division of labor, there were certain things that only men did. The, the Buddhist would very rarely kill because their Muslim neighbors were happy to, or did it, you know, killed animals. But um, if they did, it was something that only men did, kill animals, not women. Mm -hmm. The men would tend to uh, spin the coarser wool, the women the finer wool. Um, but the men did the weaving, women very rarely did it. What was interesting too was there wasn't in most things some absolute line that could not be uh, changed. You know, it was mm -hmm. a quite flexible, tolerant and fluid society. Yeah. Uh, so there were sort of general norms. And so generally the property would be passed on to the eldest son, but women could also inherit. And so sometimes it was a woman who owned most mm -hmm. of the property. Um, so it was, and I think, you know, it's interesting about power. It's the same thing about wealth. When we don't in any way acknowledge the inner wealth is when these people who have so much inner wealth are made to look poor. And in the same way, in terms of power structures, one of the really interesting thing with the power structures was also that there would be in the more formal economy and politics beyond the household, men tended to be the representatives and particularly for relationships further away, like long distance trade and so on. Mm -hmm. It's almost exclusively men who did that. Um, but women had far more say, um, well, they had huge amount of say in terms of the, the core of the economy and the decision-making, which was centered around the household <laughs> and around the network of relationships they had with a few other households. So right. <laughs> that, that reminds me of a, of a joke that, uh, that in my family, we're very traditional. Um, I'm the man, so I make the decisions. And my wife, she tells me what my decision is going to be. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I think you still do see that actually in the West, that in many households, it is the woman who actually has, has a bigger say. And, and the big right. difference is that in traditional cultures, things were so decentralized that, that um, they had so much more real power than we do in, in, in the West, because the household has been turned into this shadow economy which doesn't count for anything which right. by the way i was thinking about that with this new book local is our future I, you know again i'm touching on a lot of big ideas and i'd like to elaborate on that more but it struck me then how with this modern economy we have marginalized and made invisible the two most important functions that we can perform as human beings by far 
And one of them is parenting, <laughs> which has been made into the shadow work. And the other one is farming and farmers, you know, who are doing the most important productive work. Uh, you know, like I was saying before, there's nothing else we humans produce that we all need every single day. Yeah. And um, so again, there's just there's some there's a sort of basic ABC of looking at this economic system. And as you were saying, you know, about debt and the, the creation of money, you know, there's a, just a certain basic economic literacy that I think the whole world would benefit so much from people being willing to take that on. And, you know, Charles, we should do more. I'd love to do an economic literacy course with you. Well, um... <laughs> that's something you want to leave out. You can leave that out of this podcast. Yeah, no, it's... We, yeah, there's there's a lot of... a lot of. Uh, I'm working on a lot of ideas about, about uh, you know, what to... What to do next? What to do next. I mean, there's just so many... So many, I have like some things in the pipeline. Um, I told you I'm going to take a sabbatical next year. Yeah. yeah. But are you, are you doing that to, to, have, to think about things in the pipeline or are you going to really take time off? No, I'm going to, I'm, well, I'm, it's, I'm still like formulating exactly what the uh, sabbatical will be. I, right now I'm going to, what I'm pretty clear on is that I'm going to take a sabbatical from public speaking and from interviews. On, on other people's podcasts and stuff. Um, I don't think I will take a break from any kind of productive creativity, you know, but I, I'm going to, I'm not going to have a, a, a schedule that I have to, or deadlines or anything that I have to meet. That sounds really good. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, and, and the, or you, you spoke a few times of your organization. Do you want to just name the organization and where people can find it? Sure. Yes. Um, my the organization is Local Futures, and you can find us at www.localfutures.org. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Helena. Maybe we should wrap it up for now. Uh, yeah, really, yeah. really appreciate yeah, you having you on. Thank you so much. Loved it. Yeah, great. Okay. Well, to be continued. Yes, absolutely. Thank you.